Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Ho, 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 Seattle. Hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the... Well, the Santa of, oh, I don't know what I am. I'm just uh, happy to be here. It is December. It's, uh, what is it, 10 days of Christmas or 12? <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, but we've, it's always fun to open up some gifts, and I have a gift here in studio. I've got uh, two cats, the proprietors, Locust Wines and locustwines.com here in Seattle. Uh, they just opened a new tasting room in Pioneer Square, which is very bold because we know how everyone's so friendly down in Pioneer Square, and, and that's improving because they are now uh, part of the local community and demanding change and uh, holding our, our uh, city leaders accountable. Uh, but with all the lights down there and all the people shopping, it's a great time to visit Pioneer Square. And I've got uh, uh, Rich Burton, who is the winemaker for Locust Wines, and Ton. He just goes, he's like a supermodel. He just goes by one name, Ton. And he is the culinary director for Locust Wines. And uh, gentlemen, happy holidays and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Fantastic. Thank happy you for holidays having us. Happy to you, too. All right. So uh, the last guy was Ton, and the first guy was... Uh, <laughs> Rich, uh, gentlemen, let's talk about locust wines. How how in the world did you have hocus pocus locust? Well, uh, when we first started the winery, um, the first uh, the first uh, the uh, first uh, vintage that I did was in 2012, uh, and when we were trying to come up with a name for the winery, that was honestly probably one of the hardest things we had to do. Uh, it was all about um, we really wanted to focus on. Uh, the fact that we pull all of our fruit from um, higher elevation, cooler climate vineyards, we really try and focus on the Rhone varietals in Washington State. When it comes to the reds uh, with the whites, you'll definitely see us using the Bordeaux varietals. Uh, we just both felt that those were the things that were growing best in Washington State, and that's what we wanted to work with. Interesting. Were you tasting something prior to that that said, you know what, this is because of some success, whether it's Boucher or Upland or Snipes or uh, Natchez Heights, that, you know, those are high elevation areas. Was there some winemakers that you said, hey, this is kind of, this turns me on? Oh, yeah. Boucher was definitely one of those, one of those folks. Uh, loved his wines from very early on, very early in our wine drinking uh, experience. Uh, and then, yeah, I got a little bit more familiar with uh, some of the cooler areas like um, in Rattlesnake Hills. Mm -hmm. uh, we pull some fruit from Deneen. I uh, really like uh, some of the kind of cooler uh, dips in the valley there, uh, as well as uh, Natchez Heights. I uh, really got connected with Phil Klein, who sure. you know, and yep. uh, I get fruit from him. Um, and uh, really like what I'm seeing in terms of the Syrah that's coming off of Natchez Heights. Right. Uh, and uh, Pat Deneen is, uh, was an old friend of mine as well. And um, it's funny how to see the six degrees of Christopher Chan, <laughs> maybe not, uh, uh, or of Dick Boucher. And I know that Dick doesn't make any wine, but he certainly has to approve uh, all the wines before he will add his name or allow you to use his name on any label. Um, when, how, let's talk about your winemaking skills. Where did you practice? Where did you learn? Where did you convince yourself that this is a profession? 
Yes. Uh, well, first it was the fact that we drink a lot of wine. So we were like, okay, what are we going to do we next? We can save yeah. some money. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we both come from the corporate world. Um, I still am in the corporate world. And so the winery has always been, you know, what's next? What are we going to do after that? Um, I don't really like the thought of retirement and not doing anything. So uh, winemaking was... I like the thought of retirement. Come on, I mean, this this isn't work. This is this is fun. Yes, it's a lifestyle. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so at the at that time, I just decided to go to Washington State. So I went through the Washington State Enology Program. Um, Is that in Prosser or is that in Pullman? All of the above. Um, I did there. They have the distance program, right? So I did a lot of it. uh, A lot of it you do virtually, and then you come together. um, I think we did three or four times. A couple times in Prosser, once over in Pullman. Um, Is that to, like during harvest? Yep. Okay. Uh, so you're doing harvest. You're doing uh, working in, in a winery. Uh, you're doing a lot of lab work. There was also a, a whole session on tasting wine and uh, the the perception of wine. Oh, interesting. So it, it was a great it was a great program. However, I will say uh, at the same time, I just got a, a ton of fruit. Um, of Syrah. And In this case, you actually do it. mean a ton. A ton. A lot of people say a there's a, we had a ton of fun, but you had a ton of fruit. Yes, Syrah. So that was the first vintage I made, 2012. I did it while I was going through the program. And Did you need a license? Yeah, so we got our, our, I was just, just our liquor license. Uh, we, we got our liquor license. Uh, Tom, uh, we'll talk about this as well, but the uh, we got our house in Madrona here in Seattle bonded as our official winery just like uh paul beverage yes and we are who lives two blocks behind us <laughs> Not kidding. Yeah. all right turn the tell them to turn that party music down uh so fun well speaking of ton ton how did you get involved i was involved from day one baby yes so we started the winery because like rich said we've been drinking wine for so long that we figured there might <laughs> be some cost savings. Idea, yeah. And then uh, the way we started is is because maybe he got his uh, you know first midlife crisis and decided to do this. I was in my fourth when I left corporate world and decided to go into culinary world. I went through the culinary academy, which is part of Seattle Central College over in Broadway and Pine, and decided to do it full time. Uh, I started a catering company and then started teaching at the place that I graduated from. And then, of course, it made sense, right? Food and wine. Wine elevates food. Food elevates wine. It only made sense that... Wait, I thought wine elevates mood. Oh, mood and food. Mood and food. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So, essentially, it only made sense that if we were going to do something with wine, uh, food would be part of it. So, I thought this was a good synergy. We took it to the next level. We started doing release parties at the house because, like I said, we registered... He said we registered the house, right? And then, for each of the wines that we would pour seven or nine wines we would have every release party we would pair it with food and that became a deal so we would have three four hundred people sometimes coming through in a core in a uh, time frame of like four hours on a saturday so it just kind of eventually made us start thinking okay where can we take it to the next level how can we take it to the next level and that's how the whole uh Pioneer Square tasting room came to be. All right, so did you have to remodel this kitchen in this particular house? Because it sounds like trying to feed 400, 400 people might need a few more. Oh, like the Madrona house? Yeah. Well, uh, in a winery situation, you can't actually prepare the food in the house. Oh, so everything had pre- to be happening, uh, be prepared in a my commissary kitchen. And then it. shove it all in a car, bring it all to the house, <laughs> carry up the stairs, and prepare with like seven people in the kitchen. 
trust me, you don't want me to talk about this. And make it look this. like it, it, it was really easy. I see, because yeah. if you have food preparation in a winery with alcohol, it makes you a restaurant, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, then you get taxed to heck. Uh, so fun. And when you think about the first commercial vintage was when? 2012. Oh, so that's Syrah. Mm-hmm. You made it, and you said, "This is I'm, I got a label. Yes. How'd that process go? The the labeling process. I mean, how did you the, find a design? I'm looking at your your label, yeah. and it's um, it's iconic. It looks like uh, one eyeball looking through half a glass. I'm not sure. Tell me what this design is. It's whatever you want it to be. Ooh, I see. Uh, the, yeah, the the that was also a big uh, like a fun part of kind of creating the the brand. Um, I sat down with a friend of mine who's a web designer, so I come from the tech space, and I just said, hey. Do you want to try and design a wine label? Because I really liked um, her aesthetic when she was creating uh, web, you know, web portals. And she said, "Yeah, let's try it." And uh, the first thing that we did was uh, sit down, and she had an iPad and said, "All right, tell me the story of the winery." And so I explained to her what I explained to you earlier about really focusing on um, certain regions and certain grapes, and uh, talked about the fact that we wanted something that was a bit more modern, uh, a bit more clean. Um, because honestly, that is kind of an extension of the wines as well. Cool. Um, and uh, after about 10 minutes, she turned her iPad around and with her fingers, she had drawn that symbol. <laughs> and I said, that's it. That's what I want. And locus, is that a Latin term? Yes. Latin okay. for location. Location. I got it. Um, what's pocus then? Is that Latin? I'm not, I, I can't help <laughs> no, you on that focus. one. Uh, all right, cool. So you have actually a tasting experience. You're more than just cheese and crackers at a tasting room. And, and your tasting room is down in Piner Square at the site of a uh, previous tasting room, which is a great location. I love those brick buildings in, up there in the promenade. It's just a little bit on, uh, south of Occidental Square. I'm not sure. What's that area called? Occidental Mall. Occidental Mall. <laughs> it's right across from Cafe Umbria and London Plain, those places. Yes, uh, which is uh, really turning into a, a cool, uh, hip little neighborhood. And so when it comes down, your, your tasting room hours are when? Uh, we're open daily from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. except Tuesdays. All right. And that means closed Tuesdays. Closed on Tuesdays. All right. Absolutely. And you have this cool menu. You have more than just uh, wine tasting. You have a chance to pair some cool beverages. And, of course, you also have a chance to do tasting, buy bottles. And uh, what's this other purse, this little? Bottles to go. Bottles to We're go. We're also a bottle shop. Oh, I see. So you can drink a bottle on, on site or you can take a bottle to go. Yeah. And we have, like, three flights, and each flight has four wines, and each of the four wines have bite to eat. And then... Just because we wanted people to have a little bit more experience, we also uh, put some meatballs, because who doesn't want meatballs, and lamb meatballs especially, and some salads on the menu, as well as some mezza platters and stuff. So if you come here and want to drink a glass of wine, you totally can. If you want to open a bottle, that's fine too. And or have a salad. And you should have your salad, absolutely. Interesting. So is that a, did you have to get a special license for that, or is that just a catering license on premise? It's actually a, a they call it a Type 2 license, so it's short of a restaurant because we don't have a hood, but 
It's it, quite frankly, I'm gonna. Uh, should I be telling everyone in, on the radio? The estate wine room had the food license. Oh, so all we had to do was to transfer in the, into our name, working Fantastic. with the Department of Health. Uh, it was well, nice. good for you. So uh, we, I have a lovely plate here, and congratulations on your presentation skills. Uh, there's four bites here. One looks like a prawn with fennel and a little uh, microgreen. The second looks like a um, a country pate with some stone ground mustard and a bit of, I want to say that's apricot jam you know i've got a little puff pastry but it looks more like a potato uh something with a little herb oil <laughs> and the final is cheese looks like a blue cheese it's pretty accurate there how dare you sir call my uh pate a country pate it, well it is actually <laughs> because it's a pork pistachio pate absolutely uh -huh. and then you're right about the filo filo dough it's uh, 64 layers of filo dough brushed with milk and eggs and then for a good measure i put caramelized onions and lamb in there mm. because again I'm from the Middle East. I'm from Turkey. We eat a lot of lamb. And then the last one, I did not make that one, Chris. It's Stilton from Stilton. the UK. I love blue cheese, and I think blue cheese goes so well with some of the Syrahs that Rich produces. So That's very exciting. Um, so we have a, a glass of white wine in front of us, 2018 white wine. Um, we got just two minutes before we take a break. So let's talk about this, and which pairing should we go with? Yeah, so we'll we'll do these in order. So this is going to pair with the prawn. Uh, what you've got uh, in front of you is a uh, wine that we call our Moto White. So this is the 2018 vintage. Um, our Moto White has always been some sort of Bordeaux blend. Um, so in this one, you've got Semillon, Sa Blanc. Any guesses as to which one is forward? Uh, Semillon. Good job. 60% Semillon, 40% Sa Blanc. Right. Um, we have done kind of a, a Saab Blanc heavy one in the past. Um, I am really kind of leaning more towards the Semillon forward. Um, I just really like the kind of weight that it adds to the Yes, the I agree. I hope that Semillon would be one of those Washington wines that we could really put a stamp to, but it just never came to fruition here. And I like Semillon. I like the richness it offers. Um, and I get some lease contact here as well. Uh, are you doing batonage or is... Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I totally agree with you on the Semillon thing. That This is, uh, Semillon is the first white that I made since uh, 2013. Okay. Uh, was the first Semillon that I've done. Always this is 2018, all right. Yeah, always from Deneen. I've always had uh, fruit from Deneen uh, when it comes to Semillon. And the the food pairing? The the fennel is uh, marinated in lemon, ju lemon juice with some uh, uh, Mari lemon juice, actually, a little bit sweeter. And then on top is the, the prawn baked with, brushed with butter and then baked with dukkah spice. Dukkah spice is an Egyptian nut spice that has a lot of hazelnuts, cashews, and dried herbs. So it kind of draws out the, the flavors from the wine and enhances with some spice. Hey, man. Right on. That works. I'm not a huge Sauvignon Blanc fan. I don't care where it's from. But it's really tasty. Hey, folks, stick around. I've got uh, Locust Wines, the Cool Cats here from Pioneer Square in studio. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. And you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Ho, ho, ho. Hope you're having a happy Saturday night. We're here for round two, and I got two cool cats in the studio. 
Uh, Taunt and Rich, both of Locust Wines with a new taste room down in Pioneer Square. We just had a tasty little blend called uh, Moda White Wine. It's a blend of Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, which a little more forward there. Uh, great pairing. You guys are specializing in this wine tasting, wine pairing, um, and we have a red wine to taste next. What's this, is Rich? We do. Um, this is our uh, first cab, actually. So this is the first uh, full-blown Cabernet that I've... Um, you might think it's a little weird that we're actually putting this first, um, but once you try it, I think you'll understand why. It is a bit lighter um, on the lighter side for a Cabernet. Um, it's from a vineyard, uh, it's a 2014, and it's from a vineyard called Ramsayer Vineyard that is uh, no longer in existence. Right, yes. Oh, Ramsayer's out. Yeah. That's yeah, too bad they had a cool label and all that, but I know how it works. Um, smells beautiful. You've got, what, 30% new oak on it? Correct. About, about 30? New French. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is going to go, uh, Ton, with the... We're going to try that with the pork pate. It's a pork pistachio pate that's wrapped in uh, some pancetta. And I think the, the pork pate alone is a little boring, so I actually served that with a bit of pickled mustard seeds and some apricot to give it a bit of little color. Flavor oh, and color. Africa. Yes. Wow, that's what I do. Mm, <laughs> yummy. Well made. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I like the texture. I like it's got some chew. Mm-hmm. Your um, whole grain mustard, nice and bright, but also got that little those little bubbles of deliciousness. Um, <laughs> the balls, I guess. <laughs> Pods, bees, what do you call deliciousness, yes. Here's the season for the balls. Um, yes. yes, this works because tannin has, um, obviously, or sorry, uh, cab has a more tannin, and you've got plenty of uh, richness and fat and flavor in the uh, country pate. Great stuff. What does this 2014 Cabernet cost? Uh, this is 35 in 35 the bucks. room. Yeah. It's our most expensive bottle of wine. Mm. It's delicious. I like that it's um, it can carry off. Um, it's delicious by itself. It smells great, and it um, the tannin is is well rounded. It's very integrated. It's certainly um, got fruit on the forward side, um, but it's just dry enough on the finish. And that uh, mustard makes your mouth water too. So I think the acidity Good. there is nice and balanced. Okay, next wine is this is our uh, flagship wine. I so <clears throat> I mentioned before that we really focus on the Rhone varietals. Um, so every year I'm getting a mm, lot of Syrah, some Syrah, Grenache, yeah. some Merved, some Cinso. This is actually a blend of all four. Um, this is our 2015 Red. Uh, it's a Syrah heavy blend, followed by Cinso, Mouved, and then Grenache. And uh, I feel like this is probably the one that's really tasting the best right now. Um, certainly very dark flavors in that Syrah. I'm really impressed with that. And this is 2015 vintage. Um, and obviously, you know, Yakima was much derided uh, 20 years ago when I got in the business because it was too cold. Uh, and now it's it's like it's the sweet spot in Washington State because you're not fighting too many heat units. Of course, uh, that valley does keep some cool air down there, which maintains great uh, respiration and great ripeness of acidity. Uh, this is delicious as well, and I, I think um, it's really ready to, to drink right out of the, of the gate. Yep, I would uh, completely agree with this. This is really our first – this is the what I call the first blend. Uh, this is the first um, – Roan blend that I put together in theory, the best that I can do with what your tete de cuvee, if you yes. will. All right, Tan, and uh, which uh, bite am I tasting? This third bite for this one, I would do the lamb pastry. It's again sixty-four layers of uh, deliciousness filo dough, brushed with milk and eggs, and then layered with caramelized onions and some lamb, cinnamon, thyme, and then I usually serve this with a bit of salt on top and then some herbal oil around it, so that it can cut the the richness a little bit as well. So either basil, parsley, whatever green uh, deliciousness I have laying around in the fridge. This reminds me of, is it moussaka or is it um, 
sure. Another dish with the the, the herb, the sweeter spiced lamb in there. It's got yeah, absolutely. I don't know. My thing is Slovakia. I haven't eaten <laughs> Slovakia any. or moussaka. I think you can go. You can sway either direction. Boom. Well, That's I right. do like to sway in either direction. If you know what I'm saying. And this uh, this wine really works because you got some of those spice notes in the grape blend, and I think the fruit really lasts. Of course, um, what I like about that particular bite is that it's dry enough so you get all the flavors, but it's moist enough so that it's not. Like you're like waiting to get get through it. This is uh, it goes great with the wine because the wine sort of re, re and vigors your palate. Yeah, the uh, this pastry uh, we've actually got three different varieties right now in the tasting room. So wow, yeah, three different have... varieties of the pastry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took baby the... lamb, uh, young lamb, and old lamb. Well, we, I do a four cheese ba- version of this because why not four cheese, right? And somebody asked me like, why not five cheese? And I'm like, yeah, there's an idea. And then we also have a. Uh, caprese version exactly (laughs) caprese version I took the basic idea of a caprese and then uh, turned it into a deliciously unhealthy pastry and it goes really well with the Barbera for example some uh, some of the stuff that can carry or Merlot blend okay well um, I I take it you carry those wines at the tasting room down in Pioneer Square yes I did a small lot of Barbera for our wine club fantastic okay we have one more bite and this is always a tough one I know Stilton and cheese and blue cheeses are strong they're pungent uh, certainly creamy and salty and a lot of people like to pair the sweeter wines whether it be a port um, something uh, like a ruby port or even vintage uh, you have a wine here what's the wine you're gonna pair with the Stilton yeah so this is one of our single vineyard uh, single varietal uh, Syrahs so um, this is from a vineyard called Keller Vineyard that I don't think you've heard of because it is a one-acre vineyard that is up on Natchez Heights. <laughs> yes. One acre, huh? Yep. And so wh- are they growing just one grape? Uh, yes. It's okay. all Syrah. A guy named uh, Dan Keller and his wife Ruth um, planted an acre of Syrah next to their house because they wanted something kind of beautiful there. And... Um, I don't know if they ever thought that it would be made into uh, actual wine, but I got connected with them through um, some contacts over there. Uh, decided that we would try the wine. We did the first uh, vintage in 2013. This is the 2015. Um, I love it. I love that kind of higher elevation, cooler climate Syrah, and I think this is a perfect representation of it. Tom, what's your idea with the pairing? So you were saying uh, a lot of people do sweeter wines with uh, Stilton, right? Um, well, Or blues. I feel like a lot of the uh, a lot of the Washington wines are on the sweeter side, not necessarily too sweet, uh, definitely fruit forward, but also they have dried fruit notes to me, especially the Keller uh, product. So in 2013, it was a little bit more abundant. In 2015, I think we'll get there, but I really feel a lot of the flavors uh, that he was able to imbue really complements the Stilton. And Stilton is my favorite blue cheese. But this also goes with some of the local uh, ones you can find, like the Northwest Creamery, the Rogue Blue. That also is an amazing uh, combination. I for had that. Point Reyes uh, on the on the show a couple of months ago, and yeah. we talked about their award winning um, Creamy Blue. And I, I haven't had Stilton in a long time, and it's really delicious cheese. I, I like that it's salty, but it's very very creamy. Mm-hmm. The blue is just subtle, for the most part, and the salt kind of uh, helps process that. Uh, we'll call the uh, uh, was it aspergillus mold? I forget what they use in that. Um, this wine uh, is very Syrah-esque. I like the fact that, I mean, for you, I've made wine from Nachi's Heights before. I like the fact that it's windy, that it's uh, it gets plenty of photosynthesis, but the temperature is never too hot. And I think that really helps grapes that have some aromat- aromatics to it. 
I don't know about cab up there because cab's not going to hurt from, uh, it already has a lot of tannin. Um, but this is uh, definitely delicious. And I'm surprised. Keller Keller Vineyard. And so they had one acre. So did you get a deal on it? I mean, <laughs> you say. Uh, I've I've worked with uh, Dan for a while now and I get all the fruit. So this is literally the only Keller Vineyard uh, Syrah in existence. And it's just been a great relationship and I really love the fruit. So. And for the record, uh, they did not name their vineyards. It was it was we t- we told them like, oh, we should name it Keller Vineyard, and they were like really gushing and really cute and shy about it too. I was going to so. say, I, where was the Ruth Vineyard or something? You know, it said I you, know, you get married and <laughs> use the last name. Um, but this is really exciting, guys. If this is what you're doing in Seattle, you guys are really elevating the game and I think that's important as as we have over a thousand wineries now here in Washington State and we we push the envelope of a tasting room experience um, and, and when you're in a tasting room remember don't wear cologne don't wear too much perfume be certainly nice be be patient um, you know you have one or two people working there and everybody's always wants you know some people down their glass in a second let's talk about your tasting room you said it's open Wednesday through Monday 11 to 7 was it yeah absolutely we wanted to be open a Monday for the trade and then you know it's a great space. You may have seen it when it was a state swine room. Yeah, yes, very so we're, lovely. So we're we're already lining up some events over there. So it's a good event space, and I have a commissary kitchen, so I can cater it for dinners and whatever. So uh, we're we're gonna hopefully, like you said, take it to the next level. But I also want when I when you say elevated, it sometimes scares me. Like it sounds expensive or fancy or unapproachable. We want to be welcoming and approachable. Good food and good wine doesn't have to be expensive, doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to use big words. It just needs to be accessible, approachable. And you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, well, try harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's certainly one way to approach it. Um, Rich, you how was the 19 vintage for you? Uh, I'm really excited about 19. Um, Every winemaker is about excited about the next vintage coming out, right? All of my red was still out on the vines when the frost hit. Um, and... Uh, Went and tried it after. There was frost and, in Yakima. Yeah, yeah. I missed it. I must have been traveling. I guess it did got get down to twenties. Yeah, we got uh, an early late October. Yep, right? got an early frost this year, and um, honestly, I, I feel like we're just going to have really naturally high acidic wines, which I love. Uh, definitely going to be lighter style this year, which I love. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, how about that? So we, you know, Washington State's gone through the gamut of different profiles of wine. Whether it's starting at nine, which is hot; ten was cool; eleven cooler. Then we get a little warmer, warmer, warmer. And fifteen, actually, not just heights up there. Uh, you get the wind, so it doesn't matter how hot it is. You're going to have that natural cooling effect. Uh, it's locustwines.com, and you have uh, you're open for the holidays. So bring down the folks. You don't have to cook. You can jump on and and order some light bites, but also uh, try how many wines you have tasting down there. Right now, I think we've got about ten wines that we're okay. tasting. Okay, well that's plenty. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's a law too. You can't actually pour more than five or something, is there? No, there's no law. I love it. It's anarchy, just like that. Hey, folks, um, uh, Ton and Rich with Locust Wines, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Hey, folks, stick around. we got lots more coming up right here on 570 KVI. Some say three is a crowd. We say the more the merrier. Markley, Van Camp, and Robbins. Weekdays, 9 to noon, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, gobble, gobble, gobble. I know that we ate a lot of turkey last month at Thanksgiving, but uh, I have um, one of the heirs to the turkey empire. <laughs> Her name is Heidi <laughs> Distel, and she is uh, on the line, and she's going to really talk turkey. 
We're going to talk about um, how to find, um, you know, what the differences are in all those, you know, wrapped turkeys in the frozen section, and also what makes turkey really great. Um, let's waste no time. Uh, Heidi Distill, welcome to Happy Hour. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having us. Tell me about your family. Yes. Well, we could be here all day, but I'll summarize. We uh, we are farmers. Uh, I'm fourth generation um, and Distill Family Turkey Ranch. We uh, ra- own and operate um, as a family and grow turkeys here um, in Northern California. Um, our, we've been doing it for about 70 years, so we're celebrating our 70th anniversary. So our company has been in existence since 1949. It's just part of what we do. We love it. We must be crazy, but Thanksgiving is a really special time for us, as is the holidays in general. So Very good. Now, I'm curious, when you say you grow turkeys, is this like a stem cell, or is this really like sitting on, <laughs> sitting on an egg, or how does it work? How do you grow a turkey? Hey, you know, these days, that's a very good clarifying question with the way that uh, food's going. No, the, this is a real deal. So we are turkey farmers. So um, we have a whole team of folks that work with us that are fantastic. Uh, we got a variety of ranches um, across our, our county here. And um, we, we receive the poults, so the little turkeys, um, at a day old, and then we raise them um, up until the time uh, that they need to go to harvest. harvest. And um, so we're the real deal, actually raising the animals and then packaging them up and sending them into the stores. Now, uh, I know that birds, uh, there are certain phylum kingdoms where there, uh, you know, there's a lead bird or, or the lead lion or the elephant, etc. Is there a lead turkey? Is there like a, a man turkey? And what do you call it? <laughs> <laughs> is there a man? There is a man, and he is named Tom. Um, <laughs> you've got hens. Got me. You've got hens and toms. Uh, yeah, you got the tom birds. Um, yeah, and they, you know, they definitely strut. They, they puff up. They want to they wanna show their dominance. They want to attract all those females, you know, pretty typical, right? Yeah, I know. I got to try that gobble, 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 see how it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about um, the harvest points for turkeys. Are there? There's not just one harvest of a turkey. I mean, there's different ages, right? You get a young turkey, a tom turkey. Tell me about that. Yeah, totally. So, um by the USDA definition, classical definition, you know, the turkeys are young. That's why you see across the board everything says young turkey. Um, but uh, to your point, you know, we grow our turkeys slowly, um, and they do have quite a bit more time than your average commodity turkey would. And that's, you know, really important part of um, growing a high-quality product. All of our products start at being antibiotic-free, vegetarian-fed, and then, of course, we go to the non-GMO project verified, certified organic. We have heirloom varietals, pasture-raised turkeys, um, so kind of a, a wide spectrum there. But as far as the the, um, the young aspect, um, you know, they are raised in our in, in what we do to, quote-unquote, maturity right around in that uh, neck of the wood, which takes about 20 weeks, just shy of six months. Oh, interesting. And I, I'm wondering, um, you know, when we think of young, are there are there years in Turkey? We talk about dog years, but are there turkey years? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't think that there are per se turkey years, but, uh, you know, turkeys in the wild can live quite a few years. Um, but, um, of course, we're not quite testing that theory usually. <laughs> sure. You mentioned heritage turkeys. Are we talking the one that... Uh, uh, Squanto or the, you know, the first pilgrim, is there an East coast Turkey versus a West coast Turkey? I mean, tell me about heirloom. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I'm sure there are. Uh, but we, we grow an heirloom collection, so it's not a true heritage breed, although there are those that exist. Um, but the de-stole turkeys are an heirloom varietal, so we use a collection of, of um, older genetics to make up um, those bronze and black feathered turkeys. Those birds are absolutely phenomenal. They're really for the foodie-centric person who loves um, loves something a little bit unique. They do have a richer, more complex flavor. Um, sometimes the heritage turkeys or some of these older genetics get uh, a bad rap for having just a more gamey flavor, and ours don't. Um, they're just they're just I the only the best way to describe it is they're just more rich and complex in flavor. Interesting. When we talk about certain breeds of uh, pork, uh, there are a lot lot of heritage varieties um, around the world. And one of the famous ones, of course, is the Blackfoot pig from uh, Spain, and they eat acorns. Is there sort of a, mm -hmm. a certain diet, like we talk about corn finished or pasture finished? Mm -hmm. um, is there something in the turkey world that is similar to that? You know, we have, uh, we, we actually own, you know, we, we run our own mill. So we source the corn and the soy that the turkeys eat, and we, we mill their feed fresh daily. Um, and so we're very familiar with what they're eating. And we've tried a variety of different programs um, like um, fodder, which is like a sprouted grain. Uh, and there isn't necessarily like the, uh, the acorn fed ham. There isn't necessarily uh, something that um, particular, but um, we can tell a huge difference in the quality and the texture of the meat, the flavor of the meat um, when you have really consistent feed quality uh, of your corn and soy and all your micro ingredients that you put in there. Um, that's, that is very important. And, you know, not all turkeys are raised to be premium, um, and so um, ours are, so that's a big point of differentiation. Interesting. And so how many turkeys would grow at a specific property? Are we talking 10,000 birds or tell me? Yeah, so it totally depends upon the size of the farm and kind of the um, the flock placement. Um, so the birds do are raised in a flock mentality, right? Birds the sure. flock together. Uh -huh. uh, so um, you know, some ranches you could have five thousand turkeys, and some ranches, yes, you know, you could have up to ten thousand plus turkeys um, on a ranch at any given time. It really depends upon the size of the turkey, um, and then sure. you know, the toms are you know, you're going to have less birds. Uh, because of the space. And then, you know, some of your smaller turkeys, you might have more. Um, it's just all kind of dependent um, on what you're doing at that time. I see. And so is there one tom per flock or are there like, can they, I remember watching uh, uh, Foghorn Leghorn. They would punch in against you know, Coyote and Roadrunner. They would punch in and take turns on the shift. Is is there a uh, is this twenty four seven? Is there daylight or are, are they eating all the time? Or is there somebody in charge? Like, is there a turkey in charge? <laughs> we hope so. Yeah. No. Um. You've got all the toms. They'll they'll kind of stay together and and they they are raised together. And then you have all the hens and they're raised together. Uh, just because, you know, size is important. Um, you kind of want the same size turkeys in a flock together. You don't want the big ones with the little ones, et cetera. Um, and so, uh, you know, we also have really small turkeys, which we call our petite birds. Um, and those turkeys are fully mature at only six to 10 pounds. So they're going to, they're going to stay on a farm for, you know, their, their full lifespan. Um, but you know, they're never going to be a tom turkey, right? So, um, you know, we have ranch managers, but the thing about our program is that we try to be 
you know, as natural as possible, there is a barn-centered environment for the majority of the birds, and then they have access outside. Um, but, you know, if it's raining or pouring, you know, bad weather, if you have, you know, predator issues, then we're going to bring the turkeys inside. So you have a farmer who's there walking the flock every day, checking out the health of the birds, managing, you know, if they need to be inside or outside, and kind of making sure that the whole flock itself is 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 uh, as good as it can be. Interesting. I know that my mom here in Seattle, uh, she had chickens for, for many years, and of course she would walk around and the chickens would follow her. I think that's part of the flock mentality. Um, is yeah. there uh, is there like a special suit that someone wears or are turkeys smart enough to recognize a face, or do they just know that at 11 o'clock this person walks around and he's the one to follow? <laughs> Turkeys are quite inquisitive. They kind of want to check you out, see what's going on. Um, and so because we have farmers that walk the flock daily, um, they're out there. You know, they uh, most of our farmers live on the ranches as well. And so they're, they don't necessarily need to wear any special suits or what have you because they're kind of they're one with their birds. Right. Um, <laughs> now, if you were to go visit a ranch, you know, biosecurity wise, you would probably want to, um, you know, put on a coverall um, because you know all the germs we bring with us we kind of don't we don't want to uh, uh, introduce any you know bad bacteria into the uh, into the flock because we aren't using any antibiotics in our products so we want to keep those birds nice and healthy but um, yeah I mean the turkeys know when someone comes in they kind of come up they check you out if you have something shiny on they're definitely into shiny shoes they're, they're all about it. <laughs> uh, so fun. Well, we're going to take a break here um, in just less than a minute. But final question, uh, and we'll then we'll spill over to the next, because I want to get some recipes from you. But um, are turkeys, uh, are they white feathered from, from day one, and they, get, they, they mature to get brown feathers, or how does that work? Oh, you asked such a good question. All right, hold, wait, no, hold that. Know why? No, hold that thought. See, I took too long explaining it. So the music comes up. That means we're going to take a little break. So um, I will we'll answer that question. We come back. I've got Heidi Distel, who is, uh, well, in the Turkey Hall of Fame and a <laughs> farmer extraordinaire. Hey, folks, we're learning how to taste a turkey coming up next on Happy Hour Radio. He's live, he's local, he's all Northwest. Lars Larson, weekdays noon to 3, talk radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, gobble, gobble, gobble. Uh, hey, we're back, and we're talking turkey with Heidi Distel, who is a fourth-generation turkey farmer. Heidi, I was asking a question that it's going to take some time. Are turkeys, when they're born, do they have white feathers, and when do the color? When do the feathers get colored? Totally. So um, back in the day, a uh, couple generations of turkeys ago, all turkeys were bronze and black feathered. Um, that's why the majority of the white turkeys you'll see um, are mostly bronze and black feathered. The majority of the birds were, I should say. Um, and uh, those bronze and black feathered turkeys, um, you know, they, they can leave ink marks on the skin um, or they have the, the black quills. Um, and so the industry actually bred that bronze and black feathered trait out. Um, and that's why the majority of the turkeys raised today are white, because they do not leave any blemishes on the skin. Uh, and that is the story behind why most turkeys are white turkeys that are grown for consumption. Okay, now that's see, I, I asked the right question, Wes. I'm very curious. Now, obviously, there's several varieties at the grocery store. Um, how do we choose a turkey, and what's the best recipe in your mind, how to, to, to extract the most flavor and experience out of one of those turkeys? 
Yeah, so here's the thing. You don't you want to start with a good quality turkey. The the day of the 39 cent or 99 cent frozen turkey should should really cease to exist. Uh, we're not doing these birds justice at that price point. So first start with a really good quality ingredient, which would be a really good quality turkey. Yes, it's going to cost a little bit more. Shoot, even maybe like four ninety nine a pound. But let's just think about, you know, how much we spend on beef all year long. And then once you have a really good quality turkey, um, we are a bit old-fashioned in this way, but um, low low temperature in the oven and keep your spices um, really simple. Uh, you don't have to do you don't have to do a lot to have a really good turkey if you've started with something that's really good quality. Wow, that's pretty easy. Uh, and so uh, I mean, how often do you enjoy turkey? Is this something that you know you only do on Thanksgiving? And is there a prize bird that the Diesel family sort of, you know, you have a selection that hey, we're waiting for this one? Like if I'm a winemaker, I've got a prize barrel of wine I want to enjoy. But tell me what, how you guys celebrate. Totally. Well, so for us, my grandpa's still around. He's 93 years young, and uh, he likes to have a really big turkey. We love to eat in our family. We're very um, culinary centered. So um, our Thanksgiving uh, literally uh, is the um, is a about thirty pound bird, and wow. um, every turkey comes with a recipe on the back, um, and it's just salt, paprika, olive oil. We smother that on the turkey, and we put it in the oven low and slow, and that is legitimately how the Diesel family has Thanksgiving every year. Um, of course, all of our roasting tips and techniques um, and, um, you know, all of this information can be found on our website at diestelturkey.com. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Now, it's not to say, of course, that you don't, you don't, you know, you don't need to brine, butter, lather, you know, bake and smother your turkey. That can only, you know, help. But if you start with a really good bird, you don't necessarily have to if you're looking for something simple. And when you think about sometimes a piece of turkey's tough, is that because I didn't buy a high-quality turkey, or is that because I, I overcooked it or something? Yeah, so let's talk about that roasting method. So the thing about cooking a turkey, a whole turkey, is that the, the USDA encourages the bird to temp out at 165 degrees. Now, it is important <laughs> that your turkey cooks to 165 degrees, but you got to consider, if you have a 12-pound turkey that you're putting in an oven and you cook it and it's in the oven and it temps out at 165 degrees, when you pull it out of the oven, it's going to continue to cook, right? right? It doesn't right. just stop cooking. So uh, that's always something to think about. And usually some of those where turkey gets a bad rap, the dry, the tough, uh, the chalky flavor what, or, you know, texture, what have you, that's usually because we've over-roasted the turkey uh, because folks really want to make sure the turkey is cooked. But, you know, you need to consider when the turkey temps out and how much it's going to cook after you pull it out of the oven. Right, and especially what you're using for stuffing. I think that's a lot of it, too, because we would use some mm -hmm. ingredients that needed some extra time. Okay, uh, final question here. Uh, is there, does the governor, you're in Texas, right? No, we're in Northern California. I'm oh, sorry, Northern California. Okay, <laughs> I, got I think I was thinking. I, I was but. thinking George Bush for some reason, and how the president <laughs> pardons a turkey. Now, do you guys are you in on the whole on the White House pardoning program? You know, I, I, they, we're not. We should be, right? Um, no, usually it's an East Coast turkey that gets pardoned. I think it's just proximity, trying to get a live turkey to the White House to get pardoned. But 
you know, maybe one day one of our turkeys will make it there. We'll see. All right. Uh, Heidi, do you still uh, the website again? DieselTurkey.com. Diesel Turkey. All right. And give me your best turkey gobble gobble. Oh, Lord. That on command? Come on. Ah. <laughs> All right, that's the fourth generation call. Heidi Diesel with uh, DieselTurkey.com. Hey, what a treat. I really appreciate learning more about the famous bird, and thank you so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Hey, thank you. All right, folks, you got it all. You got wine, you got turkey, you got bites. And remember, when you're out and about, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers!